Hello, and welcome to Everything Remade, a podcast that I hope is about growth as much as it is about music. I'm Sean Decker, and I'd like you to hear something. Underground by Broken Hearts Are Blue, featuring my pal Daniel Bittner on bass. The song comes from their forthcoming album, Dark Whimsy and Soft Surrealism, coming soon to streaming in double LP. I was born in the Green Bay, Wisconsin, um, but I don't really say I'm from Green Bay unless I'm talking to a Packers fan, but I don't really <laughs> like football. So, yeah. um, you know, we stayed there a couple of years and then we moved to Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Um, see, my dad worked in, in television and so he was a reporter for a while, then he was a news anchor and then he was a, a news director and then he managed TV stations. So we kind of moved around a little bit. Um, so we were in Eau Claire for a few years, and then we moved out to upstate New York in uh, a town um, near Rochester, a little village called Honeyoy Falls. And I spent most of my like elementary school years there. And then when I was in seventh grade, we moved to Kalamazoo, Michigan. So I always say I'm from Kalamazoo because that's like, you know, my teen years and college years. That's like where I became who I am today. Mm hmm. Um, so, you know, we moved around a little bit, um, and, uh, my family life was, you know, it's pre it was pretty run of the mill, you know, middle class family. My parents, um, are still together. I have an older brother and an older sister and, um, you know, we, uh, I don't know. It, it seems pretty normal to me. Like when I, I talk to people about like, you know, things they had happen in their lives growing up, like those, like trap, uh, you know, difficult things or, or, you know, traumatic type stuff like that stuff didn't happen to me. It was just a pretty much, pretty much a normal childhood. My parents, you know, loved us and took care of us. And, uh, I don't know. I, I look back and I think like I had a really good childhood. Um, I was able to do like pretty much what, you know, I wanted to do. I wasn't like pushed too hard in any one direction, um, since I was, I'm the baby of the family and my parents were kind of like, you know, we're just going to let Dan do whatever he wants. You know, <laughs> I had like, I had like free reign to like, or I had a license to kind of be like the creative one or be the goofy one or, you know, you know how that goes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, from my personal experience, uh, with my own children, I, I think that something happens and not, not that I, um, personally was like stifling like my children's creative you know outlets or whatever but something just happens like with like by the time we had our third kid like we're like i don't really care if people's elbows are on the table 
Like I just don't, <laughs> you know? Like right. so yeah. so like I can see that something like that being the case too. Like if if somebody's you know, if somebody had told their older kids like no, I don't want you skateboarding. And by the time you get to the third, it's like, look, I don't care. You know, <laughs> right. like, uh, yeah. yeah. And my, my older brother, uh, was, he was a difficult kid. He was, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, a troublemaker. He just, he made poor decisions and he always got caught doing whatever he was doing. Um, and so I kind of learned from him what not to do and how not to behave um, so by the time I was at the age where, you know, my decisions really mattered, um, most of the decisions I made were my parents were like, Oh, that, that's great. <laughs> yeah. 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 So yeah, is it, you, a lot less to worry about, I guess, in that case. Yeah. So that's good. Um, you said that you, you know, you had an older brother. How many siblings did you have? Um, well, I, I had two. My brother, who is was four years older than me, he passed away a few years ago. And I have a sister who is uh, two years older than me. She lives in Detroit, Michigan. Okay. Um, were your siblings interested in music at all, like while you were growing up? Or Yeah. In fact, the reason I started playing bass is, um, you know, my brother, my older brother had, he started playing bass when he was in high school. And uh, I had not expressed any interest or thought even thought about playing music but um you know i was a skate punk in in middle school when i was in in michigan you know some i don't know how or why but some friends of mine and i decided we were going to throw a band together for the middle school talent show and uh my friend steve uh he came from a very musical family they had like drums and guitars and things set up in their basement and my friend Dave played in the school drums in the school band, so he was on drums. And um, well, my older brother had a bass, <laughs> so I got I got you know I got the bass guitar uh, role, and um, that was kind of like my first like experience, like oh, this is actually kind of cool. You know? So you you wound up playing bass just because there was one available. There was one available. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's that's awesome. Did you now at that point? you're already like listening to you know you said like skate punk kid and stuff um so uh how 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 was like music around your household exactly like did, were your parents really interested in music like did they listen to a lot around the house or did you come to that completely on your own um well you know i kind of came to it um, the the kind of music I eventually got into, you know, I got influenced by my friends. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't I wasn't into like like the skate music. Like when we lived in New York, um, we you know I was just listening to whatever was on MTV. Mm -hmm. And my brother was a huge Pink Floyd fan, so I kind I was I got into Pink Floyd quite a bit in like sixth and seventh grade. And then when I moved to Michigan, you know my skater friends were into typical skate music but i wasn't ever into like you know the circle jerks or you know the dead milkman or afi or any of those things jody foster's army <laughs> i was never into that kind of stuff <laughs> uh, so yeah i mean my favorite album when i was in eighth grade was like the sid barrett solo album which is still a great record <laughs> yeah yeah i i feel like you just listed some of my favorite bands from when I was like, <laughs> from when I was like middle school, uh, high school. Yeah, I mean, I was I was really like into all that stuff, but I was also into like, uh, 
you know, um, I was also into like a, this was when, you know, like, like rap was like really, really like exploding back then. So I was oh, yeah. also really into that. And, and, uh, as much kind of like thrash stuff as I could get my hands on as well, you know? So, um, I was just thinking like what, you know, you would say, oh, I didn't like any of this stuff. And then you'd list five things that you liked. And I would also be like, yes, and I liked that. Because <laughs> uh, it was kind of just, I don't know, you know, anything that wasn't like what my dad was listening to, you know, or whatever. Which yeah. is kind of weird now, too, because like now I like, I listen to all the stuff I listen to. And I listen to stuff that like, um, a lot of people like our age or whatever would also think like they'd be like, Oh, I don't like this, this new music or whatever. I, I like that stuff. But then also right. like, found myself like, you know, some of that stuff that my dad used to listen to was kind of cool actually. Um, right. But, uh, yeah, it's, um, kind of weird. But, um, so you said like your friends in school were influencing you. Um, and, and, uh, but, but, but like not necessarily you weren't necessarily listening to the exact same stuff um w other than you know the mention album you mentioned before like what was the stuff that really got you like to where you were like you know thought that it was a possibility for you to play music and other than the fact that you had a bass handy like um had you was there an album or something that resonated with you where you were like that's it and i'd want to do that um i don't know if there was a particular album um but i think it was the the culture in kalamazoo at that time you know i started going to shows uh when i was i want to say right before i was a freshman in high school mm -hmm. and um the first show the first show i ever went to was um uh the laugh laughing hyenas who were from ann arbor uh circus lupus uh, fuel, uh, which ended up becoming a huge influence on me. Um, and, fuel, uh, then like, 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 uh, yeah. the name is fuel. Like yeah. Yeah. The moments Sarah to Kirsten. excess. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Uh, that, uh, that, that album, that LP, that fuel LP was like, I, I must've played that tape a million times. Yeah. Uh, when that thing came out, monuments to exits, uh -huh. I think, or monument. Yeah. Uh -huh. that was so, it. um, yeah, that first show. And I think Admiral was supposed to play that show, but they didn't show up. And, and I mean, uh, I mean, that would have been the greatest show ever, but that was like, kind of like how I got introduced to like, you know, local music or punk music. And then like pretty soon, like, you know, everyone you knew was either played a guitar or a bass or was starting a band. And uh, my friend Steve, the guy I played in the the middle school band with, um, he uh, when he was in um, when we were in high school, I was a senior and he was a junior. He was playing drums in a band with some older guys called Spork, um, just because he was that good at the drums. But um, he was uh he was kind of an influence on me like you know like hey you could just do this you know it's like anyone can anyone can buy an instrument and do it mm -hmm. and uh and another one of our friends an older guy uh named Elliston um he and I were out one day and he he went and bought a guitar and uh that's when I decided oh I'm going to actually go buy a bass and actually start playing bass so Ellison and I played a little bit together and uh he ended up moving away 
Um, we didn't really start a band or anything, but um, an interesting fact, he's still heavily involved in music. He, um, he runs a, uh, a modular synthesis magazine called Waveform, and uh, so he's, he's still really doing some interesting stuff. But um, Steve and I ended up starting a band. He was, like I said, he was playing drums, but he wanted to play guitar in kind of like an emo band. And so um, when I started playing bass, we, uh, we started a band with uh, this freshman dropout kid named Neil. And um, it, was, it was fun. We both uh, sang and played, and it was really bad, but it was really fun. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm, um, you know, I don't know why I was like just thinking of this where you were talking about your friend like uh, just being like... Um, yeah, you can do this like anybody can do this. Is But I was immediately reminded of the line from one of those Cheech and Chong movies where they're like, it's just punk, you don't even have to be good, you know? <laughs> you don't. Yeah, you don't. <laughs> and that's like basically, that was basically like my, you know, my starter uh, starter kit was just like, yeah, it doesn't matter, just go for it. Yeah, um, I mean, when you tell people nowadays that like, Back in the '90s, you you you. This is how it went. You you picked up an instrument, you started a band, and a couple maybe months later, you're playing shows, and then a couple months after that, you're recording a seven inch, and then six months later, you're going on tour. It's like when you tell people that, they just they don't understand that that is actually quite literally how it happened. Yeah, there wasn't like there was not there was not the same kind of like a lot of thought like there is now like it's really weird like so, you know one of my friends was telling me one time that they were listening to uh they, or they were looking at their like spotify plays and they noticed a certain area had a lot of plays for them so they were like trying to like play that area specifically and i was like that's wild like you know <laughs> like shit like that still would not cross my mind you know uh, but uh, right yeah but like yeah i mean you're just like you're just like looking at a map and obviously the bigger the city's name is on the map you figure that's a bigger city because like <laughs> you know and you're like yep or or you've heard of that one so you're like we should try to go there you know <laughs> yep. and, uh that was it but i don't know i was also thinking like it's wild like you know i i took because i totally spaced that that y'all were from like the Kalamazoo area until we just started chatting again too. And I was just like, what is it about Kalamazoo? Like, like it's, there's something about that place. That's just like it. It's like, you know, it's this really weird sounding name for a town, but yeah. that it's always seemed ahead of itself, like musically and like, like, uh, I, you know, I'm going to say politically, but like, I don't mean that in like, you know, Democrats, Republicans sense, because like, so like, uh, 11 years ago, my band Comer Galia, like we played one of our first out of town shows in Kalamazoo and, um, and we went in to the house where we were going to play and there was like a marker board and it had the people who live there and it had their fucking pronouns on it. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> 11 years ago. Yeah, I was like fucking blown away by that. I was like, whoa, like, what the fuck? Like, and like, I never heard people having these conversations like that people were having there, you know, sure. in the shows and yeah. stuff. And it really like, 
you know, that, like, it really opened my mind up to all these conversations that people will have, like, only in just the last few years. But it opened me up to, like, you know, like, eight years or whatever before uh, the rest of the world was, like, catching on. So I was I was really just, like, yeah, I mean, I'm, like, just, like, what is, like... I, you know, I have friends there and I like, I love the people that I know from there. Like, they're just great folks. And, but I'm just like, what, what is it about this like specific little part of Michigan that's like, you know, there's just something about it that's just seems like it's ahead of itself in these certain ways, you know? Um, yeah. I don't know. It's really cool. Well, it is cool. And I, I mean, just, I mean, in general, I think creativity breeds creativity. So when you have like, a handful of people who are doing something interesting like that kind of catches on um and breeds itself but in probably a more like um logical explanation would be just that kalamazoo is it's the home of western michigan university and people come from you know the eastern side of the state to go to school there they come from like um you know out way out in like the northern part of the state to go to school there's some people come from all over to go to school there so it really is like people don't really think of it as a college town because in michigan we have you know east lansing for michigan state we have ann arbor mm-hmm. um but kalamazoo really is a college town and so there's a lot of uh, interesting people you know just kind of rotating through there regularly and is that the more is that the more like liberal arts focused of the schools or um, you know, that's a good question. I don't know. Right. I, I just, you know, you always like, that's how it is in Indiana anyway. It's like, um, the more liberal arts focused school out of the two bigger schools in, in Indiana is in Bloomington. And so like Bloomington will have, you know, it's just a, it's always been a little bit ahead of the curve. Like as far as the rest of Indiana goes, like as far as, you know, um, DIY culture and just like, you know, um, like certain like, um, identity politics and stuff like that as well. So like, yeah, uh, that's why I was just like, you know, wondering about that, but um, well, out of, out of the three, uh, the big schools, it's, it was the cheapest between, you know, Michigan state <laughs> and, and the university of Michigan and Western Michigan. It was, it was the cheaper of the three. <laughs> I mean, sometimes you'd be surprised what that says about the liberal arts programs there as well, because um, I know like, so Purdue is, you know, right. Purdue is like five minutes from my house. And, um, and the more, um, the bigger their, um, their uh, enrollment has been over the years like the more enrollment they get over the years the bigger their student body is the less of a liberal arts school it has like they've just they've yep. just been chipping away at it they're like no we do not need that anymore we don't need it we don't need it um so yeah it's like once they once they're like uh really focused on like making all their money from engineering students or whatever they're just like who cares um right yeah it's like yeah it's like the alternative kid at school who realizes oh you know he has the opportunity to be popular if he just changes (laughs) himself a little bit (laughs) that's awesome yeah i mean you know um that's 
that that describes a lot of people at my school actually. <laughs> <laughs> couple different like divergence before we ever really found out like so how did this uh middle school like talent show band thing how'd that go oh it was it was it was fun but it was you know it was middle school like I, yeah uh we well first of all we played two songs we played um uh should i stay or should i go by the clash and need you tonight by in excess okay those were our two songs yeah so we we played the talent show and then like never spoke of music again like we just like we were like oh yeah we're gonna start this band and then the talent show came and went and then we went back to skating full-time you know but uh um, those two songs though that's not a bad like (laughs) blueprint for like kind of like what broken hearts are blue like you know what i, I suppose, mean yeah like it's kind yeah. of it's kind of weird like but if you if you really think about that you're like well that's not this isn't too far off but uh <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe not <laughs> yeah, that's funny um so like di- once you did that were you i mean were you like immediately like enamored with the experience of playing music in front of people or were you did it take you some warming up to um, well, you know, it was a great, it was a great experience. Um, and I think, you know, every kid should have that experience of, of doing some kind of performance in front of, in front of a group. I think it's just really good for kids to do that. Um, and so, you know, I just, uh, like I said, it was, it, it was afterwards, uh, it, being in a band, it would just take too much effort and, you know, too much discipline. Um, and so, you know, when I think about my own kids and how I, you know, I wish my old, my 16 year old would spend more time playing guitar, but I'm like, well, you know, it, it takes discipline, but it's a, it's a the kind of discipline that you need to inflict upon yourself. Mm-hmm. You can't have someone else do it. And, um, so we just didn't have it. And then, uh, like I said, I didn't, uh, it was high school or probably my junior year when I, I actually, um, thought, okay, this is something I want to do. Um, and that's just because, uh, you know, almost everyone I knew played an instrument or or was in some kind of band or some sort, taking lessons or doing something. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, when you went to start a band, like what kind of stuff were you listening to? And, and um, what was like when you started your first like semi-serious band in high school, like um, what was what were you aiming to sound like? What kind of stuff were you trying to do? Uh, typical, you know, anything that was like DIY, hardcore, underground, that's what we were, we were into, like emo stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Steve, the guy I had played with in um, 
the middle school talent show and my high school band. Um, he got like an advanced copy of like, um, you remember that band Grey House? Uh-huh. Um, they had like a, a, they recorded a bunch of songs and he got a copy of it from the bass player for the band he was playing drums in. And, um, you know, we listened to that and that was like kind of influential on us. And I don't know, it just, any, any band that was coming through, was like, oh, wow, here's a new band, you know, oh, wow, here's a new band, that's super cool. But, you know, Fugazi, any kind of Discord, anything emo, Rites of Spring, you know, we loved all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, how, now, like, had you been playing, like, by yourself this, this whole time, or did you take any lessons at any point? Yeah, I took some bass lessons um, when I started. When I started, uh, actually, when I bought a bass, I started. I took bass lessons for a couple of years, um, on and off, and it was like one of those things where, you know, my my teacher had a guitar, and we would um, we would play like, you know, blues and jazz type stuff, and he was showing me how to read the music. But you know, once we started, I started like playing shows. Um, the lessons became less and, and less important to me. You know, yeah. it's like, well, I'm already playing shows. I, I really don't want to <laughs> sit and play with, play this little blues number with the guy in the back of the, the music shop. Yeah. Um, but I don't, you know, it, yeah, it was just like, you know, like we said, you just you just did it. You, yeah. you didn't matter how good you were or whatever. It just. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I imagine like if the goal was to get to the playing the shows depart and you're already there it's like why am i still doing this other thing you know like if you you wanted to be ridiculously good at bass then yeah you stick with the lessons but if you're if you're already at point b then why why are we still you know doing this other thing Um, yeah and i I do see value in, in you know learning learning how to play an instrument the the correct way yeah um yeah i'm not saying that they, i didn't value that but i did but you know there's only so much time you, you know high schooler has in the day and yeah you know. and i mean that's all that's also like kind of like one of those hindsight things as well because like you know i don't know if you specifically remember like what your thought process was at the time but it's like me personally when i was just learning to play guitar like you know if if it would have been like i didn't take lessons but if i would have been like taking lessons to in my own mind just to get good enough to be able to play shows then i'd be like well i don't i obviously don't need to do that anymore so like right that's a little bit maybe of that like youthful you know arrogance or whatever whereas like yeah i don't know i like i wish that i still had the kind of like um <clears throat> training like regime like mentality that I did um up to a point where I thought well okay I'm good enough to play in bands you know like yeah. I, I wish I still played for like however many hours a day like I was obsessed with it and I just played like all the time and you know like yeah but um yeah, but also like back then, like uh, music lessons weren't really set up to for the kind of music that we were playing or mm-hmm. even into. You know, it's like you remember when you started to play guitar, you were probably trying to pick apart every band you were listening to to try to figure out what they were doing. And I, you know, I was doing that with the bass. Mm-hmm. You know, I was a huge Jawbreaker fan, and I would just sit and listen to those bass lines and like try to 
try to write to the same kind of thing. Um, and I was also, I figured out I was able to like listen to something and figure out how to play it pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of took the place of lessons for me. And it's it, just learning the different styles of how people were playing at that time. Cause you couldn't really go to your, you know, guitar teacher or your bass teacher and be like, Hey, you know, did you listen to the new jawbreaker record? You know, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> Can you show me how to play like that? Yeah. I mean, you know, it, I wish you could have. But uh, I mean, maybe now, like it's, you can now, yeah. yeah now you yeah. sign your kid up for band camp and or rock and roll school of rock or whatever. Yeah, they're playing. Yeah, yeah it's <laughs> wild. Like how many different, you know, um, how many different accounts of of different types of um, lessons that I've had. You know, just doing these chats. Like sometimes it's like the bit you know it's exactly what you described it's like you could ask your uh guitar teacher to learn like the system of a down song and then they'll play it with you you know yeah Um, yeah but then others are it's just like yours it's like no we're gonna play this scale and that's it (laughs) you know and uh yeah i don't know so now i mean you can probably get some you know between videos or like like uh, Zoom lessons or whatever you you could find any kind of teacher you'd like, but um, yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, so you said you were like in this high school band, you were like playing shows and stuff. So you were like writing your own songs and and recording demos and stuff as well, or? Yeah, we didn't get to the demo part. We you know we were writing our own songs and um, you know we we played a handful of shows. Um, it was just me and and Steve and, and the drummer kid Neil. And um, Steve and I were, were we were both on the high school paper, and uh, that was like last hour of the day. And one of the jobs for the high school paper was, you know, you could be the ad managers. And if you're the ad managers, you got to leave school early and you know go around and try to get local businesses to buy ads for our school paper. Um, and our drummer, like I said, he had dropped out of high school when he was a freshman. So Steve and I would like we'd be the ad managers and we'd leave right at the beginning of sixth hour and then we go over to neil's house and and pick him up and go practice um <laughs> and it was like you know we knock on his door and he'd, he'd come to the door like wrapped in a blanket you know the shades are drawn there's a cooking show on tv and um so you know we, we practice and uh you know we got a handful of basement shows but eventually you know that all became too much for neil so he quit and then um Steve and I went on to form Ordination of Aaron with some other friends of ours whose band had also recently broke up. Okay, so um, so there's definitely recordings of that. Um, I've actually had the LPs in my distro and everything. Uh, so so yeah. uh, if, any, if anybody doesn't know who Ordination of Aaron is, it definitely should check that out. <laughs> but um, uh, def- definitely like... Uh, legends in the uh screamy hardcore uh, <laughs> right, community, yeah. if you ask me but um so um what was it like the first time when you went to record your own band's music what was what kind of setup was involved and like how did you find it the experience overall so the first time I did any real recording um, was with Ordination of Aaron, and we um, recorded uh, at Western Michigan University. They had a sound studio, and one of our friends named Todd Carter was studying, studying engineering, and he had recorded um, some lo- other local bands. 
And, uh, you know, it was one of those things where you just, lo everyone loads into one room, you play everything live, you know, except for the vocals. And, uh, and you do it all in like one or two takes, mm -hmm. you know, so we ended up doing like five or six songs, like in an evening. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, you know, the experience was, um, I don't know, it, it, it gave like you this, it just gives you this feeling of like some, some, some level of importance, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's not that we were like, we had any illusions that we were awesome, you know, we we're going to make this amazing music, but it was just cool that we had access to this studio and this equipment. And there was an engineer there who was willing to, you know, spend time paying attention to us. It's just a really good feeling to do that. Yeah. It's, um, I feel like, you know, there's something that happens when you record as well. That's like that, that, little bit of of pressure or whatever makes the like performance part seem that much more important or critical as well you know just like yeah you just like and so <clears throat> you're like already trying to do it like as good as you've ever done it but it there's something to it that just like makes it i don't know it's 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 great i i record music a lot and i still feel that that like tingle all the time it's i don't know i really that's, I really that's good i think it's a lot of fun um yeah and it, i mean that was like so far removed from the way like professional music musicians do it you know yeah like a lot of musicians like wait until they get into the studio to start writing the music <laughs> oh i know i, I actually like, hear about that like still like even even with you know, people that I know and stuff. And I'm, I'm just like, wow, like <laughs> how, what's that? I mean, I don't know. I certainly, um, I certainly, I have a lot of, um, projects where it might be me and just one other person. And so in those instances, I certainly do let, let myself have a lot more like room to mm -hmm. just like change my mind about something later you know but um yeah but yeah as far as just like um having having like four people just like show up with just a handful of parts and making an album like on the spot i just that sounds really anxiety inducing to me <laughs> you know right <laughs> like well yeah if you're if you're paying for studio time for sure yeah yeah. But, you know, nowadays things are set up where you don't you don't have to. I mean, the, the technology is there where you don't have to actually go into a studio and and, and do that. But yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so so um, was the first um, ordination of Aaron uh, recording? Was that for like a seven inch or I, I'm not like at some point I just had like a, a like a discography like LP, like it may, I think it might even be a double LP, but um, yeah, so I don't know that, that one, much though. about the, about the, uh, individual releases. So what was the first recording for? So, um, we did, I want to say five or six songs and, uh, two of them got released on Bloodlink records. That was our first seven inch and um then another one was on um no we were on a couple different comps at the time that we just gave the songs to but we didn't have any plans to do anything major at that point but and i don't remember if 
we were, we were even planning on doing the seven inch for blood link at that time. Mm-hmm. But I think it was like, Oh, you know, we've been playing some shows. We have some money. Let's go in and record. And then, you know, when opportunities came up, Oh, you want to do the seven inch? Well, here's some songs or, Oh, we can be on that cop. Well, here's a song. Yeah. And, and it wasn't until, um, the, we recorded an LP, um, actually like after the band broke up, um, we had, we went on tour and you know how things go. Like when you came back from, we came back from tour and we all hated each other. And, um, we broke up like immediately, like the day we got back, we're like, there was no even thought of ever playing again. And then, um, Matt Weeks, who, uh, he sang for, uh, the band's current in Ottawa. They were out of Dearborn, Michigan over in the Detroit area. And they were good friends of ours. He runs a label called council records and he asked if we'd be interested in doing an LP to release on his album or his, his label. And so, um, we got back together and wrote some songs almost purely just to release that record, the LP, and then, you know, played a few, sh- a few shows that winter. But then as soon as the record came out, we, we were done. That's wild. Yeah. Like, uh, was the tour like particularly bad? Like were there, were there like just like disastrous or was it just a matter of people not getting along? Oh, no, the tour was great. Uh, you know, the summer of 1994, I mean, I, and, and I had roadied for a friend's band in 93 and then again in 95. And I think 94 was just like the greatest <laughs> summer. It's like the shows were amazing. Like anywhere you went, there people knew your band already. They had had the 7-inch or they were excited to hear you. And, you know, there are places we'd show up, like, you know, there's that gazebo um, on the river in Little Rock. I don't even know what river it is, but, um, you know, there were like hundreds of kids there just waiting, waiting to hear you play. And so the tour itself was great. Uh, It's just the personalities of the people of us at that age. And we didn't really we didn't know how to handle like navigating something so unstructured and, uh, you know, personalities clashed and in the you know, we're all friends now but at the time we were just like you know there were almost like little camps of people forming within the band and you know you might have be involved in one camp or multiple camps and you know yeah yeah it's so. wild like um my current band was a t- was a two-piece band for a really long time because i was like when <laughs> whenever you have more than two people in a band there's there's alliances <laughs> yes <laughs> and these yes, little alliances are. they start you know they start <laughs> happening and then and then uh you know you never know who's really secretly <laughs> mad at the other person or whatever right it's, yes uh, exactly. it's, uh, silly stuff but uh yeah it was a two-piece band for a long time, so I <laughs> didn't want to sleep with one eye open. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it, um, yeah, it's wild. Like, uh, you know, I that I mean, that's about when I first started playing shows as well. Was about that time, um, I wasn't like quite touring or anything yet. But um, yeah, it, it's. Uh, it's weird. I was I was thinking like, you know, I ne I never I can never think back to a time when having your music come out on a piece of vinyl like has not been the coolest thing ever. But I was thinking like, you know, there was something different about it then. 
like that I can't put my finger on. Like, so back then, like if you would have told it just about anybody, like outside of DIY or like punk, if you would have told like anybody you're gonna do a seven inch, they'd have been like, what the fuck? Yeah. Like, what why? the hell are you talking about? Yeah. yeah. They're like, what is the seven inch? You know? Right. Yeah. And, but like, that was just like, that was, it was like a given if you started a punk band. It was just a given. You're like, yeah. that's what you're going to do. Like, you're going to put your first four songs on a seven inch or your first five songs or whatever on right. a seven inch. And that was like the given. And I mean, I, and it didn't take, it didn't take six months or a year, and um, it was cheap. Like, you know, like I remember mm-hmm. my first 7-inch, like I released it when I was like still in high school, and we, you know, like we we got – the whole process took like less than a month, and I was just – I was literally just putting the 7-inch – in, you know, inside the cover, obviously, I was just putting it in a manila envelope and putting fragile, do not bend on it. And it would arrive safely all the way across the country for like 30 cents. Like, yeah, you know, true. and you'd, you'd pay like to to um, to make it, you'd pay like 70 cents whole deal. So you ship this thing whole cloth for around a dollar. And you'd make three dollars off of it, and uh, oh, it, you were selling them for four bucks. See, we were only selling no, no. $2. I, I mean, <laughs> no, we were selling them for three. Okay, and you'd make two. To me, it was to me just being able to record your songs and hear your songs back was always like, I can't believe this is a real thing. Like, you know, but uh, yeah. But um, and then having it on something that you could sell to somebody as well is just like, and people want that, and you're like, this is blowing my mind. But um, right. Yeah. Well, think of it this think of it this way, like you know, you also grew up in the era of, you know, dual cassette players where you can make mixtapes or you could, you know, record anything onto a cassette tape. So Hell a cassette yeah. tape had had no, <laughs> you know, any anything. I mean, anyone can make a cassette tape, but having something on a piece of vinyl, true, uh, you know. And, and also, you're at the age where we both are, where, you know, when we were younger, vinyl was still a thing when we were younger, mm-hmm. you know, and then it died out. And then and there's also the, you know, you tell someone, you know, your uncle or your cousin that your band just recorded a seven inch and they're like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, just like them not being clued in on it. It also made it cool, too. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> chatting for a while and um i mean i'd i'd love to you know just talk about like every little band in but i mean not little as in like it's not important but like um in between like ordination of aaron and and broken hearts are blue but like 
we have to get into that too. Because, <laughs> right. Yeah. Because uh, well, that's the, the current. There, is, there wasn't any any. There wasn't anything in between. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So, all right. So, no, no insult there to anyone. No. Um. All right. Well. Um. So, how did Broken Hearts of Blue come together exactly? Like, was it just okay. like the other band broke up, and it was just like I want to be in a band? No, it was it was a very long and agonizing process. So, um, you know, ordination of Aaron, we we recorded this album. We were about to break up, and um, I wasn't really like actively looking for another band. Um, but um, Chuck and Ryan, the guitar player and the singer for Broken Hearts Are Blue, you know, a few years earlier they had been in a number of bands together. But a few years earlier, they were in a in a band called Vine. V-I-N-E, um, and uh, they kind of, like, brought, like, emo to Kalamazoo. This is, like, in the early 90s, and they were, like, universally loved by everybody, and that that's saying a lot because in Kalamazoo, you know, even though everyone you knew was in a band, like, not everyone liked everyone else's bands, <laughs> you know? Like, no one in Kalamazoo liked Ordination of Aaron. Like, we were just, like, dumb goofball kids, but, you know, when Vine would come out and play, like, everyone would go see them. Everyone loved Vine, but they had broken up a couple years earlier. And, uh, you know, both Chuck and Ryan had done like a few like little projects here and there, but nothing really substantial. Um, and so right around the time ordination of Aaron was breaking up some, somebody, I don't know who told me that Chuck was starting a new band and it would look, they were looking for a bass player. And just by happenstance, I like right around that time I ran into Chuck at, a basement show on Sprague street. And, um, you know, I didn't know him. He was a few years older than me. Like when you're in your twenties, like someone who's five years older than you, that's like a long, that's like a huge span. So he was probably in his mid twenties and I was like, I think I was 20. So I introduced myself and said, Hey, you know, I heard you're looking for, for a bass player. Uh, and he said, you know, yeah. Uh, and he said he was playing with this guy named Craig Verity, who, he was, you know, and I, I was like, that's weird, because he was in this band called Screw Tape, and I don't know if you've ever um, heard that band Schlong, that Lookout band. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So they kind of Screw Tape kind of reminded me of that. They were just like this weird jokey band with weird time signatures, and I was like, well, that seems like a weird mix. But um, Chuck said, well, here, why don't you come to my car and I'll play some some stuff. I have some practice tapes. So we went and sat in his car, and uh, he played me this music that was this like it was like straight up like generic rock and um and the, and the first thing that came to mind is was the uh the kiss ace freely solo album um <laughs> which is actually a really good album like that is an incredible album like just on its own and i and i still love that album um so if you haven't listened to the kiss ace freely solo solo album you should listen to it but it sounded just like that and so i was like yeah you know this sounds totally right up my alley so I ended up playing with him and Craig one time and like the vibe was not even me. I even, I recognized the vibe just wasn't there. It just wasn't like, I don't know. It seemed weird. And then like, you know, a couple of days later, Chuck called me and he's like, yeah, you know, Craig, Craig doesn't, he doesn't really want to do it. And so I thought, well, he just doesn't want to play with me, I guess. And, um, but Chuck's like, well, why don't we see if we can find, you know, another drummer. And we knew, you know, a handful of drummers, and um, they're all good. And we played with, I don't know, probably five drummers, and none of them stuck. 
And, you know, we didn't have like a bunch of songs at this point. I mean, we were really into uh, like uh, Codeine or Inseam had just released um, Are You Driving Me Crazy? I think yeah. that was the name. Yeah. So we were really into that. So we were writing this kind of like really slow kind of melodic stuff. And I don't know if um, none of the drummers we played with, they just weren't into it, I guess. And so, you know, we were about like at the end of our rope trying to find a drummer and that summer, this is the summer of 95. I did some roadieing for, um, my friend's band, uh, Jihad, good friends of ours. And they did a tour with this band called Gregor and Gregor was like the post current Ottawa band. It was everyone, um, except for Matt. And so they were doing a tour and I was roading for them. And, um, we were uh, Derek, the drummer uh, for Gregor, and I were walking down the street. And it was either in Ypsilanti or Ann Arbor. And I kind of jokingly said, hey, you know, Chuck Wood and I are starting a band. We need a drummer. You know, you should you should come play with us. Um, you know, not even serious. And he's like, oh, hell yeah. You know, when the tour is over, you know, Justin's moving out to the Bay Area. Andy's moving out to New York. I'm going to have nothing to do. So he, um, when we got back from tour, he, he came and practiced with us and, and that was it. He started coming every weekend um, from Detroit, which is, you know, three hour drive. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he'd like he'd, he'd leave work Friday night and spend the night Friday. and We would practice Saturday and then he'd drive home or he'd come Saturday and we practice Saturday and Sunday. But every weekend for over a year, he was sleeping on my floor or on my couch or something of that nature. And um, when it came to and we didn't and Ryan didn't, wasn't in the band right away either. Uh, we tried playing with four or five different singers and same thing. Like none of them really stuck, you know, Chuck was really, he really wanted a female singer at one point and, but it became evident that that wasn't going to happen. And Derek and I kind of secretly just wanted Ryan to be in the band from the beginning. And, um, and Chuck and Ryan were roommates at the time. So every once in a while, Derek and I would be like, well, you know, why don't you have Ryan see if Ryan wants to sing? And, Chuck's like, nah, Ryan doesn't really want to be in a band right now, you know. He was just, like, finishing school. He was uh, finishing a degree in history education and was had just finished his student teaching. And I think he was kind of grappling with, like, not really wanting to be a teacher, but just having finished a degree, you know, the post-college uh, crisis of trying to figure out what you want to do. So, but, you know, eventually Chuck's like, well, you know, Ryan might come check us out, see what we're doing, and... So one day he did, and, you know, he showed up with uh, a manila folder with a bunch of lyrics in it, and he just started singing, and it was like magic. It just clicked, and it was perfect. Did you know Ryan from other bands? Is that why you were already, like, we should yeah. have him do it? Or? Yeah, so like I said, he and Chuck were in Vine together. Oh, okay. Right. Uh, and before that, the the two of them were in a band called Fire Sale together. So and Ryan had been in a few other things around town, and um, he was – he's highly respected for his vocals and his poetry and his voice and people just really loved him. And, and since he and Chuck had played together, uh, Chuck knew how to write for him. He knew how to write for Ryan's, the way he sang, the way he, you know, enunciated words and his register. So the two of them together are just, they work really well together. Yeah. I mean, I don't even want to tell you how many times I've tried to rip off the opening riff for Because I Am. (laughs) (laughs) It never works, though. It just would not it would not work for anyone other than 
other than y'all. But um, yeah, it's uh, I definitely I, I I need to check out some of those other bands that you just mentioned because I I feel like you know you're gonna you say oh yeah uh, they were in this band called Vine and you know that's just a that just sounds like the name of a band that I've probably listened to, but I I can't say for sure, you know? Um, But uh, it's, yeah, I think that just like that one, two punch of the, the delivery and the style is just so unique. And I want, I wanted to ask now to me, there seems to be present in your music, and I, 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 I'm hoping this isn't just like some kind of wish fulfillment on, on my end. But there seems to be present a certain attitude, like that, is in like inherently like saying no to like what a lot of bands were doing then, which was like overly macho. Like, does that make sense? Like, was there a, was, do you feel like there was a, a, like, you know, a lot of bands that were sort of like that at the time, like other hardcore bands or whatever would call them like, you know, art, like art, you know, like uh, you know, and the f the f bomb, uh, right? Yeah and, yeah, and and um, I always thought like, yeah, I mean, call me that. Like, I don't, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't want to go to a show and have people like just being macho. Like, I I didn't get into punk to go somewhere and everybody is like acting like they're on the football team. So, like, do you think? Was that a part of like the band? Like, oh, for sure, just, yeah. Just like that anti-machismo, like energy was like present and. Yeah, I mean, we weren't like. I mean, it wasn't like a conscious thing that we were going to be, you know, anti-macho. But you know, there comes a time in everyone who's into hardcore or punk or DIY where. It, it fails you at some point. Like you just, you move on past a certain whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, particularly Chuck and Ryan had, they had moved on from the hardcore scene. Like both of them had been out of playing shows for a while. Um, but Derek and I were still pretty involved in, in playing shows, um, through our other bands. And so when broken hearts or blue started playing shows, like even though, though we weren't, and we were Derek and I were also kind of growing out of it as well. Um, but that was the scene we were in. And that was, those were the shows we could get um, because those were the connections we had. So we were playing, you know, punk and hardcore shows, but that really wasn't the band we wanted to be. And, um, and Ryan in particular, like really um, despised being, being lumped in with, with that genre just because it just wasn't who he he was or or is and it wasn't who any of us were at at some point you know we we started getting into like the rolling stones and like anything recorded in the 60s and 70s and um we none of us were listening to any of the new hardcore records coming out like we just didn't 
you know, didn't really keep up with that. But, you know, those were the shows we had to play because that's the scene we were involved with. Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, uh, I, I, it's, it's wild. Like, I think about like a couple of songs on the truth about love. And I think what a, a formative record for me, like personally, like growing into myself as a musician, because like, and I, I can't be the only person out there that's felt this way, but like what that album did for me and like some of my friends as well, like is it gave us permission to like write parts that weren't like cool you know like I, right. you know right. like that didn't it it gave us permission to like be fucking weird and just write <laughs> weird shit and not fit into like you know like over my sassy self like what the fuck like we were like what the fuck like they just do whatever the fuck they want like this is this is really like in the face of the establishment or whatever like you know what i mean because yeah after a while like the counterculture just starts emulating the establishment where it's like you have to be like this and and you know we're all tough and we're all whatever you know and it, it was just like and we were like no this is like as much as orchid is or whatever this is like this is it too this is like what huh. we're talking about and like right. it it like you know i mean like it gave us permission to like not look like other people and not and just like i said just like be our authentic selves i think in a way that was unpostured and like mm -hmm. yeah i don't know so thank y'all for that i know that oh, i'm not cool. the only person you know, I can think specifically, uh, you know, a band that I was in, myself and my friend Seth, my good friend Seth, uh, we we would, like, sing that song and we would just be like, it's okay if we're, if we're not, like, if, if we're, like, effeminate, you know, it's okay if we're, like, whatever, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and who cares, like, what kind of label gets put on you or like if you're not like this is why we're here in the first place like like i said before you know we didn't come here to like be surrounded by the same kinds of people from the high school football team just in in all black with dyed black hair you know <laughs> right. it was the yeah. same mentality it's just like a different uniform you know Right. But, um, well, you know, there's a point where like whatever's cool just starts to become boring, and then what what's cool is the opposite of what was cool. <laughs> um, I mean, that you can say that about anything. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, you know, we, we didn't specifically write that way by design. Um, you know, and remember I said that the you know I first played with Chuck. He was playing these like just straight up, just like crazy rock stuff mm -hmm. um and so w before we we even had a drummer um you know we were trying to figure out what kind of sound we wanted and and i know this is going to sound you know trite or whatever but like chuck's musicianship can't be over he can't be overstated and you can say hey man someone's a really great guitar player someone's a great songwriter 
But until you like sit in front of him and watch him play and watch his fingers move. And, and he's one of those guys that like everything that came out of him was like, why isn't that a song? You know? And so he'd be like, well, here's a rock song. And you'd play this rock riff that would just melt your face off. And then you'd be like, well, you know, we could do something more bluesy. And then you'll play like a blues, a blues riff that, you know, made you like, well, shit, I don't even like the blues, but this is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, so just like honing in on a particular sound for that band was really difficult. And that's why the record is like kind of like a split between these rock songs and these really slow uh, kind of like how slow can we get this before people fall asleep, you know, <laughs> um, because he, he was one of those people that he didn't have a certain specific way he wrote. He could just write almost any way, any way you wanted. He'd be like, oh, OK, I can do that. Um, and so the record ended up being like, well, you know, we're going to do this kind of really weird, slow stuff. And it's and uh, we think it's cool. And hopefully uh, other people will, too, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I that that album, I mean, like, I feel like it, you know, it definitely informed a lot of what I think about, like, um, dynamics in in, um, in in an album can be like like there's you know interlude-ish uh, parts without it's not just an interlude you know it becomes a song and um, yeah I don't know <clears throat> uh, I think that's probably why you know uh, people are still talking about it you know 20 something years later um, that brings me to my next thing is like you know when y'all decide to remix that were you (coughs) excuse me were you already talking about like hey let's like write some more songs when you or did the reforming of the band was that like completely organic just you know based on like when y'all had gotten together to like remix the uh, original album um, no, it, it was not an organic, um, it was not an organic <laughs> process at all. Okay. Uh, so, you know, we were never, we were never happy with the, the, uh, the sound of the LP and through no fault of the engineers, no fault of anyone's other, other than our own, because, you know, we had limited time and we had limited budget and, you know, we did it in typical mid nineties fashion where we recorded, you know, 10 songs in, in, two days like Mm -hmm. vocals and mixed and everything like we did it all that weekend um which is what you did when you only had 600 bucks to spend um and so you know the record came out and um we were you know we were excited about the record but as time went on you know we started to realize well this record doesn't really sound it doesn't sound as good as the other records that were coming out at the time like if you listen to any promising record that came out in the 90s like the, the sound quality was just like way more or way better of than the truth about love. And, uh, yeah, and I'd even run into people like I was on tour with my band. I was in here in Minneapolis and in Houston and we stayed with this kid who he's like, man, I really love the truth about love, but that record just sounds like you weren't having any fun. Like the sound of it is terrible. And I'm like, yeah, it is. It is. It just does not sound good. So, um, when we decided to have it remixed, I think um, Derek, our drummer, was really instrumental in like, you know, let's let's remix it. Let's, let's find the tapes. Let's 
do whatever needs to be done. Let's do it because we have money now and it, the record deserves to sound good, especially uh, since, you know, it's up on streaming services and Bandcamp. And so that was really the, like the, the, the streaming was really like the impetus for us to be like, okay, we, we can make this record sound, sound better. Um, and, uh, you know, by virtue of the way it was recorded, um, you know, live and every instrument is bleeding into every other track, you know, there's only so much, there's only so much you can do in terms of remixing something like that. But, um, uh, we, we thought it, the remix sounded, uh, sounds better, but, um, the guy who remixed it, our engineer here in Minneapolis, uh, named Noel, um, he used uh, some alternate ver- uh, vocal tracks that weren't on the original album. And so some of them, like Ryan's like, why, why is he using this track? That was the weaker take, you know, we, we didn't use that one for a reason, but you know, but my attitude is like, well, it sounds better now because it's different from the original version and it's just something, you know, new and different. And I don't know. So, I mean, the remix was like, it came out and we we're like, Oh yeah, it's better. But then now some people are like, well, you know, I still like the original one better um, than, yeah. than the remix now. So, you know, it's like, uh, that's just the way it goes. But yeah, so, I, I mean, I, it's, I, I think, you know, that ultimately it's it's hopefully that y'all are happy and but no matter what of course there's going to be people that have been listening to that and hold that dear to them like for 20 years aren't necessarily going to be just like unanimous about you know what i'm saying about changes like that like it's yeah that's just especially on I would say, especially on Sassy Self, like the the you know the vocals are drastically different on that song. Uh huh. Uh-huh. On the remix. Um, yeah, it's it's um. Yeah, it's like like I for the for the for this kind of reason alone, I've kind of put a hard like no remixes on like my, <laughs> right. <clears throat> just because like I don't you know. I think ultimately that the artist should be satisfied. So this, what I'm, what I'm going to say is like, no, it's not a piece of advice for anyone else. And it's not a piece of like judgment on anyone else either. Um, but like when I think about like, uh, what I want out of people when they experience my music, if they have a connection to it, that's genuine and 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 there's like some kind of loving connection to that i don't want anything to stand in between um them and that and so for that reason i'm like adamantly against remixes for my main project because i'm like i want someone's connection and their their initial impressions to be uh, um singular to that experience and sure. um and i think that's just a, because that's the way that i form like bonds with pieces of music or whatever like i i'm really like set like like i described before you know the um 
my friend and and I like you know singing along to like your album and stuff you know like these are the the things that are like that album is a part of me because it's a part of that time and you know the way that I've interacted with it is is in such a way like I'm not the kind of person that would be like oh you know because you remixed it or whatever like I think I definitely saw some comments that were like come on you know leave that one like leave that one at home you didn't have to say that you know but like yeah. but um like so it's like yeah because that's just that's just like the whole like rebooted movies ruined my childhood thing it's like nobody took your original movie away from you you know right like yeah. st- you can still even on your own band camp you know you still have the original mix so like listen listen to either one you want you know um but yeah that's why i've never like done that um my myself you know even though like sometimes when i i when we'll play a song live like we play it different than the record because i'm like i realized 16 times of that one part repeating was too many times you know <laughs> like yep. but i don't want to go and re-record it because like it's just like that's that's the way it is for somebody and so that's fine you know um that that probably doesn't make any sense, but I no, guess... it does. I mean, it, there's certain in, in you know in terms of you know on, on this record is you know there there might be a certain amount of why people you know the way the record sounds might have something to do with the charm of the record you know mm-hmm. at the time you mm-hmm. know yeah and I understand that um, remixing tends tends to take away some of the magic even even though the original of whatever is still available um, you know. Um, but for us, it was, you know, we have this record and we love the, the songs. We love the record. We were just completely blown away at, at the reception it got. Um, but, uh, the only thing we didn't like about it was the sound. And so just for ourselves, we, we had to see what it would sound like if it was remixed, you know, mm-hmm. with, uh, you know, at a later later time with different equipment, with different ears, and um, it it ended up being a you know just a different interpretation of of the record. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, um, it's and, and like any any instance of like whether it's like someone who produced the record or just somebody else who was like or just like a different room you recorded it in, like especially back then. Like, I mean, I was just talking to him with my partner about this. It's just like you could have the same band show up in three different places and just have such a drastically different record. Yeah. And now with digital recording, I think it's a little less so than that. Like you could hand someone a a fairly clean digital recording and like and uh, you could get the same results from like a lot of different engineers, you know, but yeah. Like, back then especially it was uh it seemed a lot of things seemed a lot more circumstantial you know just yeah. like all the way down to just like how like you know um how much like sleep people got the night before you know or whatever i mean it's just like everything felt so much different but um like how did you go from just we're going to remix this record to like, we're writing songs again. 
So that was, you know, a process that, I mean, and I say this quite literally took, you know, 20 years. Um, We, you know, when we broke up, we broke up because Chuck had moved to go to grad school and Ryan had moved to Denver and, um, and then Derek moved out to the Bay area. Um, so, but we had this handful of songs that we did demos for, and we thought they were really good songs, but the demos are just really recorded really, really poorly. So, you know, over the years we would, you know, do, let's do like a group email. Hey, we should, you know, we should get together and re-record those songs. I mean, it's going to be much easier to do now. And, you know, then we'd kick around the idea of like recording a cover and then we're sending YouTube videos on which covers we'd like to record. And, and then the conversation would die off for a couple of years and then we'd come back and it was really Derek, um, our drummer who, who kept that, kept at it, you know, and he and I remained really good friends, um, through this whole time. And Chuck and Ryan both kind of drifted off, you know, they would drift in and out, I guess of our lives. But Derek was always like, you know, we have to get those guys to, to try to record these, these songs. There's no reason why we can't do it. I mean, you can do anything from anywhere now. Mm-hmm. And, um, but, uh, it just, Chuck in particular, it wasn't, we knew it wasn't going to happen. You know, he'd be like, yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe. And then like, you know, one day he like emails us and he's like, Hey, I, you know, I wrote this riff. Maybe, maybe this can be a new broken hearts or blue song. If you guys like it, I can, I can uh, I can keep writing, and it was like twelve bars of some like heavy tremolo, just repetitive bluesy thing. That wasn't it wasn't super great, but you know we we took to it like like a cocaine addict to like the the residue <laughs> in some paper, you know like oh my god, you know you take this, whatever we could, whatever we could get. We're like oh my god, yes, right, finish writing the song. This is what and we've then, been waiting for, right? This was the, yeah. the clue. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and but you know nothing materialized, and so and they just disappeared for a couple more years, and um, and then uh, I don't know how or why, but one day Ryan messages me and Derek, just me and Derek. Um, and said, well, you know, I really like the lyrics to this, one of our old songs, it's called Late Night Walnut Street. Um, it's like, I really love the lyrics, we should record this song. And, uh, well, Derek and I were immediately like, you know, fuck yes, and we're also going to record some of our other old ones too while we're at it. But we all knew that Chuck was was not going to, to jump on board just by virtue of his... Uh, the way he had we, he had behaved, you know, the last fifteen years. Um, so we uh, we knew we'd have to get someone else, and that's when we got our friend Brian uh, Brian Charles to play guitar in the band. And Brian was always kind of, I didn't really ever think of him as our fifth member back in the '90s, but he really was kind of like a fifth member of the band. Um, he played and sang backup on the original album. He sang backup with us for a couple of our shows and he and Chuck would spend time just sitting and playing guitar together. So he knew like all the broken hearts are blues songs. But you know, in the nineties, he's more of a, like a solo singer songwriter. So he had his own thing going on. Mm -hmm. But, um, so, uh, the band as it exists today, um, Chuck is not involved and Brian is, uh, one of the co-songwriters. And so we got, we, I asked, said, Hey, do you want to, um, do you want to help record some of these old songs? And he said, of course, I still, I can still play them all. Um, <laughs> so yeah, That's awesome. so yeah. And it was like, wow. Um, 
and uh, but he is quite a different kind of guitar player than Chuck. Like like I said, he's a he's a singer songwriter. He writes for himself mostly, but um, so we got together here in Minneapolis and did we did four songs. We did three original or uh, Broken Hearts or Blues songs that that Chuck and I had written um, back in the '90s, and then one that Brian wrote. He's like, well, I have this song. I wrote it for myself, but maybe. Maybe Ryan wants to take a stab at it, and uh, that one's called Murder Mysteries, and so that was like the fourth one we did. Um, and then, so since then, and now it just got released to streaming. We just it's called Here Is Always Nowhere. It's a four-song mm-hmm. EP. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and then, so since then, we've just we've just kept up the momentum um, of, of writing, and uh, our process is you know we've honed in on like okay, this is the best easiest way to do it when we're all living in different cities. And, um, you know, last year we did, uh, an album called, uh, Goodbye Bunny Smith mm-hmm. that was again, just released to streaming, um, which, uh, you know, we kind of demoed for a few, you know, about six months to maybe nine months beforehand. And then they came and we just, uh, we plowed through them all in typical nineties fashion, you know, in, in, in a weekend. <laughs> Um, but this record that we, we are about to release, this one is quite a bit different because um, it started being like Goodbye Bunny Smith was more of like Brian would send me a song and be like, well, what do you think of this? Does this kind of like fit in? Would this fit in with, you know, Broken Hearts or Blue? And, you know, I'd say, I'd say, yeah, of course it does. You know, it's whatever we want it to be. So then I'd write a bass line to it and then we'd send it to Derek and Ryan and and then we were only going to record like three or four songs, four songs for goodbye bunny Smith. But right at the end, Brian kept on sending me these like demos of him, like playing and singing. And I'm like, God, it's a fucking great song. Let's, let's do that one too. And so like <laughs> some of the songs on goodbye bunny Smith were like, we literally, Brian put the lyrics in front of Ryan. He's <laughs> like, okay, you're going to sing it this way. Um, and like coach, you know, coach him through And And that's one of the great things about Ryan. He's, he's an incredible writer. He's a great poet. But he also has no problem, like, you know, interpreting somebody else's words with his own voice. Um, so some of the stuff on, on all of our new stuff is uh, is written by Ryan and some of it's written by Brian. That's awesome. But um, the, the reason our, our newest record, it's called um, Dark Whimsy and Soft Surrealism. It's different is because um, Brian and I kind of like tag team the songwriting, I guess, like I would write something on bass and I'd throw in some keyboards or synthesizer piano and I'd send it to him and he'd add guitar to it. And then we'd send it to Derek and he'd put his drums on it. And then Ryan would always get it last or Brian would write something and send it to me and and so on. Mm -hmm. So the songs were like, even though like we kind of think of them as like, well, this one's my song or that one's your song. But like by the end, they became everybody's because everyone kind of interprets it however they want when they add their own music to it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I'm I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, the, like the first single sounds really good. Like, oh, thanks, um, man. Yeah, I think it's like, uh, you know, I, <clears throat> um, I listen to a lot of. Well, I actually I listened to everything that was online like over the course of the day, and I was like, yeah, this is like. Even though the first bit of this like came into existence like 20 years ago like uh well i guess it's like 25 years ago at this point 
Um, but uh, yeah, it, it it felt like a a logical progression to me, like just going from one release, even though the first two were like twenty years apart. Um, but um, yeah, you mentioned before that there was there that you were that there were songs that you recorded originally that you weren't happy with. Had you put those online at some point? Before? Yeah, those okay. I think. Okay. Yeah, I think Derek I was put like, them I, somewhere. I was like, I swore I heard those, like, just like a bunch of songs that like weren't ever released, and I was like, oh, it was like the Lost Ark, you know, for me. I was like, yeah. oh yes, and uh, and uh, yeah, me uh, like, uh, you know, me and uh, a couple of my friends were like, definitely like talking about these songs for a couple of days, but I <laughs> I wasn't able to find them um, when I was like doing my deep dive today but um yeah uh so um what what else can you tell us about the new record like uh when when is it officially releasing well um i don't know the exact date so first of all i had we knew we wanted to get this put on put on vinyl Mm -hmm. um and so i started you know, about, I don't know, maybe six months ago, started reaching out to labels. and I don't know why I didn't think to reach out to you, by the way, Sean. Um, but we, I was sending, you know, contacting labels and saying, listen, you know, I'm not assuming anyone even knows who, who we are. Like, you know, I'm from this band. We were active in the 90s. And, um, you know, we're putting out this new record. It doesn't sound anything like <laughs> what we did in the 90s. And, um, you know, in surprising amount of people got back and were like, yes, I remember your band. I'm excited to hear this new stuff. And so I'd send out demos and people would be like, well, yeah, send me some final or some rough mixes when you get to the studio stuff. And so there was like that whole process of trying to like find a a label um, that we could release the album on. And I'd say maybe a handful of people were interested, but the problem we ran into is everyone's release schedule is already booked you know, mm-hmm. through 2022 and, you know, with streaming, it's like, well, if you're releasing your album on uh, streaming, you have to coordinate that with a physical release. And we just don't know how that all works. Yeah. So, um, we ended up going with, uh, with council records, which is, you know, the original home label to ordination of Aaron and current. Um, and Matt Weeks is still a very good friend of ours and he's been releasing music for a few more years or a few years. Um, now because he stopped for a while mm-hmm. but um so he asked if we'd be interested in releasing it on his label and we of course said yes that'd be great and he goes well i don't care when you when you can put it on streaming whenever you want as soon as the the artwork and the vinyl are, are the uh, the masters are ready we'll send them to the pressing plant and and hold our breath and wait you know yeah um so we are going to so short story long we're going to release another single in a couple weeks here it's called in the hour so small and then the album will hit you know band camp probably sometime mid end september and then streaming a couple days weeks later like spotify and apple and whatever else and then the vinyl is going to come out yeah sometime in 2022 yeah yeah. And it's going to take the form of a, it's going to be a double LP. It's going to have here is always nowhere on it. Um, because it was, you know, we recorded 12 songs and we realized we're not going to fit 12 songs on a single record. So we either had to cut or we had to add a whole nother record. And 
um, you know, by adding another record, well, then you have more space. So we we added um, a few of the songs from Here Is Always Nowhere that are going to be on the vinyl release. Oh, okay. Very cool. Yeah, it's you you, you get into that weird uh, territory where it's like, it's it's uh, too much for one LP, not enough for two LPs. <laughs> you know, yep. like uh, yeah, there was a uh, one release I that I did that was like similar to that. It's like, well, you know, this is a little too, like this is a little too much for this, but I don't know. Um, yeah, but the, you know, the good thing is, like, you know, back in the '90s, like, no one would even consider putting out a double LP. But you know, now everyone's older and has money and it's not such a big deal you're just like well whatever let's just do what you want because you know who knows when you're going to be able to do it again and that was my conversation with daniel bittner thank you so much daniel for taking the time to chat with me on a personal note as a lot of you know my family and i have being forced to leave the house that we've lived in the last 22 years we've hosted shows here made records and brought up a family it's been really hard but i want to thank everyone who helped in any way possible to make this easier for us whether that was sharing the gofundme page that we have or donating some money to it i really can't thank y'all enough until next time take care and do good things